Hello, my uh, name is uh, Keith Miller at Kansas State University, and I'm going to continue uh, our discussion of climate change. Uh, in this case, from somewhat of a different perspective, my, my intent here, my purpose is not to address the scientific issues per se, uh, but rather to address what I see as underlying misconceptions, more broad misconceptions about the nature of science itself uh, that undergird a lot of the resistance of people to uh, climate change science. So when I, I, I came into this was primarily through my advocacy and interest in uh, evolutionary science uh, and communicating that to the public. And in the process of doing that, it became very apparent that many people uh, were under misguided assumptions about what science is, how science is conducted, kinds of questions that science can answer, the ways in which scientists reach consensus on particular issues. And it became very apparent in looking at the climate change discussion, that those same misconceptions were at play there as well. Uh, a lot of the very same issues uh, arise. So uh, here's a list. This is uh, by no means comprehensive, but a list of some of these misconceptions that I see uh, have seen in both the public discussions of creation and evolution and global warming, anthropogenic global, uh, global warming. And these are the ones that I'm going to be specifically addressing uh, this afternoon. One is an emphasis on facts, uh, demand for proof, perception, that science deals in facts. The purpose of science is to gather facts. Perception that theories are really secondary. Theories are unsubstantiated guesses. Uh, and therefore, uh, one theory is as good as the next. A strong discomfort with uncertainty, which is unavoidable in any kind of scientific conclusion. And unresolved questions, the unknown. Uh, a failure to recognize scale. This is when I'm really going to focus on a fair amount here in my comments. Um, that any time we perceive trends in data, that's what science is about. It's a, science, it's a process of recognizing patterns and trends. And any time we're recognizing patterns or trends in data, that has to be scale specific. So anytime we're formulating expl uh, explanations of observations, there's always an implied scale. And lastly is this whole idea of scientific consensus and what it is and why many in the public reject scientific consensus. So let's look at the first of these uh, facts. If we think of facts in the sense of an objective statement, that's true about nature in the physical universe, that's unchanging, kind of eternal, kind of an eternal truth, there are very few facts in science. The only thing that we can really think of as facts are observations. 
but even observations are not eternal absolutes. Okay? Our observations are uh, affected by many potential biases. So the reason why science is about facts in this kind of sense, this kind of absolute eternal sense, uh, is any observations that we make about the natural world can't be exhaustive. There's no way we can observe everything. There's no way to even know what there is to observe. I mean, many new observations are made because we come to new understandings of the physical universe which make us think, oh, we should look at this. But without that theoretical underpinning, we don't even know what to look for. Um, we have to choose what to observe. Uh, remember that there, there's a, a um, mental uh, disorder, um, brain disorder, in a uh, certain brain disorder in which people can't filter out um, observations, sensations, and it's completely debilitating because they can't focus. They can't focus on anything. They perceive everything as equal. They receive all stimuli as kind of, of equal importance. Uh, and that's a disability. I mean, we have to focus. We have to be able to train our concentration on a particular narrow set of observations. And what we observe is dependent on our expectations, what we want to answer, the questions we're trying to ask, uh, and the available tools. As tools change, observation, observations change. And uh, as I've already stated, what I see science is about is recognizing pattern. It's all about pattern recognition. Um, and observations alone don't, it's the patterns that provide meaning. When we recognize a pattern, that provides a means of explanation of understanding. If we don't recognize patterns, if we just have a mass of observations, it has no ability to explain. It's really useless. This is an encyclopedia of observations which aren't coherent. So it's patterns, recognition of patterns that provide meaning. So what, I want, what I'm going to do through here is kind of state a particular scientific principle and then see, show up some quotes in which I see ways in which people have not understood that particular aspect of science. So here are some things about this concept of fact or truth, objective knowledge. Uh, and these are all quotes from skeptical sources, uh, skeptics of uh, climate change. Computer models are sophisticated, put together by experts, and getting better all the time. But even if they could predict the climate correctly, they can't. Even if they were based on solid proven theories, they aren't, they still wouldn't count as evidence. Models of complex systems are based on scores of assumptions and estimates piled on dozens of theories. Okay, so see, this idea, this concept of theoretical constructs as being these kind of speculative things. And if your conclusions are based on this accumulation of these speculative theories, we're not going to believe you. Okay, it doesn't provide any weight. Um, similarly, science depends on observations. Okay, this is all about facts. Made by people at some time and place, things you can see, 
hold, hear, record. I see this very, very commonly. This perception of science, you know, true science is just this accumulation of these objective perceptual observations. And anything beyond that is speculative. See a lot of this kind of thing. And actually on both sides of the public discussion, people like to say, here are the facts, right? You have your facts, I have my facts. And it becomes a competition of who can make the longest list of facts on my side, right? So again, this is from a skeptical uh, site. And it's, I just listed the first uh, four that were on the list, but 12 facts about global change. These facts, whether or not you want to dispute them or not, are completely without context, are not part of any recognizing patterns or trends in the data, have no content, no connection with any kind of theoretical constructs. They're just these random you know, encyclopedic points. Okay. And I think many in the public, that's the way they see science. It's just this encyclopedic listing. And who, has, who can throw out the most sound bites? Who can throw out the most facts wins the debate? But as I said, science is not about this encyclopedic listing of observations. Those observations don't make any sense. You don't know what they mean. Those, you know, the, the facts that were listed on that previous image. So what? You know, what does that fact mean? What relevance does it have to the questions that we have? There's no context. So explanation, understanding is based on pattern recognition. We can understand the natural world only because it behaves in regular, predictable ways. And what we do in science is try to find those regularities. It's a search for patterns. And any recognition of pattern is a proposed explanation, however poorly it might be expressed. It's generating a theory. So you have the pattern. Why is there this pattern? Why is there this trend? Now you're developing a theoretical construction. And then any future observations that either support that understanding of that pattern count as evidence for the theory, observations that seem to not agree with our understanding of that pattern count against it. But the theory itself doesn't collapse on one contrary observation. Because again, we're looking at, at, at trends in data, patterns in data, one data point doesn't uh, torpedo the theoretical construct. Because our knowledge is always incomplete, this is the next kind of step relating to this idea of theory building and, and developing um, explanations, is we do that without having complete knowledge. We'll never have complete knowledge. So theory construction is based always on incomplete uh, knowledge. And therefore, there's always some degree of uncertainty. Um, and when the conclusions, when the implications of a particular scientific conclusion, a scientific consensus, 
requires a rather costly response on the part of its hearers, people demand really high levels of certainty, such that science can't deliver. Um, and the tendency of the media in any kind of public discussion to always have a debate. We always want, can't have a debate with only one view. You have to show multiple views, and it immediately communicates this idea of disagreement, uncertainty. Well, some scientists, you know, some scientists say this, other scientists say this. And so the public is immediately, well, this is an unresolved question, and you're asking me to make a really costly lifestyle change here. Uh, I'm not going to do that in the face of this uncertainty. And here are some quotes that reflect uh, this kind of perspective. Um, and a lot of these things I'm pulling out of very influential uh, climate skeptic sites. People are quoted a lot by that particular community. The Earth's atmosphere may be warming, but if so, not by much, and not in an alarming or unprecedented way. It is possible that the warming has a significant human influence, to use the IPCC's term, I do not dismiss that possibility. But there are other possible causes that have nothing to do with us. If this were simply an example of scientists arguing among themselves, we might recognize this is how science proceeds and move on. But this is, this is where I'm trying to get to my point here. But if there is no true causal link between CO2 and rising temperatures, in other words, well, all I see is these disagreeing voices well, if CO2 isn't involved, if it doesn't, isn't a part of global warming, if we're not involved, and if we make these really costly decisions, we're making this for nothing, right? So it says, then all the talk about carbon caps and carbon trading is simply futile. But it is worse than futile because one consequence of developing policies in this area will be to reduce not only our own standard of living, but the standard of living of the world's poorest countries. In other words, you're calling us to make a big sacrifice here. I'm going to wait around until there's proof. Another one. Uh, ultimately, policymakers will have to exercise their best judgment rather than wait for oracular scientific conclusiveness, which will never come. Notwithstanding the relentless drumbeat of studies offered as proof of onrushing catastrophe, Policymakers are rightly wary of handling over the, handing over the keys of the economy to the very same people who brought us a population bomb that turned out to be a wet firecracker, predicted imminent resource scarcity, which also fizzled, and even in the 1970s hyperventilated about our greatest climate risk was a new ice age. In other words, scientific community, they've said things in the past turned out to be exaggerated and wrong. Why should we trust them now? Okay, switching a little bit to this other area that I want to spend some time on because I think it's very critical, is this idea of scale and context. Um, as I said before, trends can only be recognized in a particular spatial and temporal context, scale. And the explanations that we have are going to be different at different scales. So how does this figure in? Well, here's a, a quote. Global warming activists insist that we can't take an assumption from a single year. 
However, if the CWS forecast turns out to be correct, we will have gone 11 years without any warming at all. 11 years in which carbon emissions did not decline in any significant matter. How does one explain that? How will, and then so forth, how, how are we going to enact climate change legislation when we're cold, right? We just had a really cold winter, so how, how can you possibly expect us to take global warming seriously? Well, here is uh, two cur uh, the curve at the top represents uh, global average temperatures since 1880. Uh, three different lines, colors represent three different data sources, okay? Three different data sets that were used to construct three different uh, curves to record uh, global average temperature anomalies over that time period. And they follow pretty closely. And over that time period, we see a pretty obvious trend in the data. Now, what these people are saying is, look at the last 10 years. There's no trend there. You're trying to hoodwink us, right? There's been no warming the last 10 years, right? It's a complete lack of recognition of scale, okay? 10 years for an annual trend, when you only have 10 data points, which doesn't do very good for uh, any kind of a trend. But if you look at this curve, how many places on that curve could you find a 10-year interval in which there is no upward trend? Lots of them, right? I can put one uh, here, 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 here. Lots of places. You can find 10 years in which there is no trend. It's a problem of scale. Similarly, it's a problem of spatial scale. Um, this past winter, I don't know how many people were paying attention to, you know, letters to the editor and blogs and things like that, but there was all this conversation in the blogosphere about how cold it was in the winter. You know, they were breaking low temperature records in North America and Siberia. This was all over the web, okay? As kind of saying, you know, in your face, climate scientists, uh, it's really cold this winter. Well, it's not only a spatial problem, uh, temporal problem, it's a spatial problem. Here is that cold winter, right? It was really cold in North America, Okay. And in Siberia, it was even colder in Siberia. They were setting record cold temperatures. But there are other places in the world that were setting record highs at exactly the same time. There's this perception that global climate change has to affect all the Earth's surface uniformly, simultaneously over time, not, to rec not recognizing that it's a very complex situation in which Certain parts of the globe are actually predicted to cool. It is not a global uniform trend. Similar kind of thing with problems of scale of melting ice, another case here. Uh, on a global basis, world sea ice in April 2008 reached levels that were unprecedented for the month of April in over 25 years. Levels of the third highest 
for April since the commencement of records in 1979, exceeded only by levels in 1979 and 1982, which seems kind of odd to state in this context. This continues a pattern established earlier in 2008. A global sea ice in March 2008 was also the third highest March on record. Okay, so in other words, um, we've had a, a increase in sea ice in these particular years um, that exceed those for the last 10 years or more. So what about global warming? Uh, these are actually graphs from that same website where I just took that quote from. And so what you see here, this is um, the global, both Arctic and Antarctic. And so here's this expansion, unusual, unprecedented expansion of ice. Um, and, but what we notice is there are other highs in the past, and those are higher highs in ice extent than this particular high here. Um, and actually, most of that was a result of expansion of ice in Antarctica. And Antarctica behaves entirely differently than the Arctic as far as its sea ice. Completely different environments of sea ice formation. Um, and if you just look at um, the um, Arctic sea ice, there's been a very persistent uh, decline in the volume of sea ice over the whole observation since satellite uh, records have been uh, able to be made. Uh, and again, what we see here, this is the north. The northern hemisphere is, by all climate models, is shown to warm faster than the southern hemisphere. And in particular, notice there are parts of Antarctica that are actually cooling. Okay? And this is consistent with the science, consistent with the global climate models, that there should be this difference between the hemispheres. Uh, here is this red line. Is that really unprecedented extent of ice uh, in the Arctic? But here are all the last 10 years in different colors. This line up here is the average for sea ice since the satellite records have been kept. Notice all of those lines are well below the average, previous average for sea ice extent. And this graph is a graph of sea ice volume. So it takes into consideration ice thickness as well as ice extent. And again, a very persistent and even accelerating trend in sea ice loss. So um, one last example of, of scale here. Um, this has to do with uh, mountain glaciers, alpine glaciers. And this particular quote is saying uh, that there is this reference to the uh, retreat of alpine glaciers as evidence of global warming. And this is, well, these recent studies have shown that there are glaciers in the Himalayas that are actually expanding. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, these mostly show in just the last one or two years. Well, here's just a selection of glaciers throughout the globe. Here are the locations, all different latitudes, all different continents. Um, 
And all of them, not all of them, most of them show declines, show retreats uh, in alpine glaciers, uh, decreases in ice volume. Notice, however, that some of them do show in the last couple years, you can pick out a few here, where there is a uptick or slight advance in the glaciers in the last year or two. But again, it's focusing on individual data points, individual facts, to try to overturn a widespread trend. Not every single glacier on the globe is retreating. There are some glaciers that are advancing, but we're talking about a global trend. We're not saying every single glacier on Earth is behaving the same way. Importance of context. Um, this is partly a scale question, but it's also uh, an issue of, of context. Here's a quote. Atmospheric carbon dioxide is at higher levels than at any time in the past 650,000 years. Yes, but go back 500 million years, and carbon levels were not just 10 to 20% higher. They were 10 to 20 times higher. The Earth has thoroughly tested the runaway greenhouse effect, and nothing happened. It was all, everything was fine and dandy 500 million years ago when we had... Carbon dioxide levels uh, several times higher than they are now. Um, so what's what's the problem? Right? This is a statement completely devoid of any context. Five hundred million years ago, the sun wasn't as bright. In fact, in geology, we have what's called the faint young sun paradox. The problem is not why it was. So cold back then, um, uh, but why it was so warm? Because the sun would say the earth should have been a solid sphere. There shouldn't have been any liquid water on the earth because there wasn't enough carbon dioxide, because there, um, the sun wasn't bright enough. But the reason the earth wasn't a solid ice sphere was because CO2 levels were really, really, really high and they compensated for a low solar radiation. Also, there are times in the Earth's past, such as the Cretaceous, the height of the age of dinosaurs, in which the Earth's climate was much, much warmer than it is. Earth was completely ice-free. Uh, there was apparently no ice, no permanent ice anywhere on the globe. There were temperate forests above the Arctic and Antarctic circles. So shouldn't we be happy for global warming? We weren't there 100, 100 million years ago. Dinosaurs were. We weren't. Ecology was completely different. The plants, animals, everything, the whole ecosystem was dramatically different. And we weren't there. These changes are happening when human societies are present. We're in, in fact, a time of an ice house. We are in one of the two coldest times in Earth history. All of human civilization, all of human society is, have developed on a very cold Earth. It's as cold as the Earth has ever been in its Earth history. Our lifestyles, all our ecosystems, everything is adapted to an ice house climate. 
we are still in the Pleistocene, you might say. We're still in an ice house climate. So the dinosaurs may have done fine with a super uh, greenhouse climate. We probably won't. Our ecosystems, our plants and animals probably won't. It's a completely different context. Last thing, rejection of consensus. Um, part of this has to do with this idea of science as um, uh, as theories as being speculative and any single counter-observation torpedoes a theory. So if I have a fact that seems contrary, that trumps the theory. And also a sense that consensus is an appeal to authority and is based on non-scientific motives. So just really quickly here, um, this, these quotes, um, mostly referring to the IPCC, uh, suggest uh, that appealing to the IPCC or a scientific consensus is an argument for authority. Just because there's a lot of people that say that doesn't mean they're right. A single scientist can prove a theory wrong. All you need is one opponent. If they could be right, and everyone else can be wrong. Um, again, a lot of, you'll see this a lot, of sense that the scientific community has a political agenda or a social agenda. And that what they're doing is not driven by the science, but be driven by an agenda. And there's a number of quotes of this nature. Uh, I won't bother reading through these. Um, but the point here is that um, scientific, the scientific community, as we all know, is an incredibly diverse community. It's drawn from people of different cultures, different religious backgrounds, different worldviews, different political aspirations, political views, social views. And yet we can get together in the same room, discuss a scientific topic, and reach a consensus, despite those differences. So consensus doesn't mean it's right, but it means it's our best shot. And it, it reflects, when you get a consensus across those divisions, across those worldview, cultural, national boundaries, that counts for something. And you overturn that consensus only with great difficulty. Thank you.